Hi, Remember Me listeners. We know you guys love music, but do we have any vinyl record collectors like me? If so, you need to check out our sponsor, Vinyl Confessions. Vinyl Confessions is a carefully curated online vinyl record shop with a mission to heal the world of its pain one record at a time. This small business has an amazing selection of new vinyl records, everything from classic live shows, amazing jazz albums, and many new releases like Taylor Swift's Fearless album. Vinyl Confessions has given our listeners a 20% off code to go check them out. So you're going to go to vinylconfessions.com. That's vinyl without the I, V-N-Y-L confessions.com and use code RememberMe for 20% off at checkout. Hi everyone, I'm Rachel and I'm Maria and we're the hosts of Remember Me. This podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with dementia. We hope this episode helps you feel more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. Today, we have the privilege of having Bernie, fellow support group member from my days back in support group, on our podcast. Welcome, Bernie. Hi, Bernie. Hi there. And Bernie is going to tell us today all about his wife Karen's journey with FTD. So, Bernie, we start the podcast off the same way every time. And our first question is, was the first moment or interaction where you started to think, like, something really isn't right here with Karen? Yeah, I thought about this question, and I think my standard response is, I think the husband is the last one to know. Yep. <laughs> because, and and the reason I believe, I mean, I didn't deny that anything was happening, but I think what it is, is as a couple, you just get into a rhythm where when you're alone, you do strange stuff. You know, you act weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. You act yep. weird. You act silly. And so sometimes things don't feel feel out of kilter. And Karen and I were, we thought differently. Mm-hmm. And so frequently she would do stuff that I would say, okay, so that's Karen being Karen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I learned that when she was telling a story to just sit back and let it happen. <laughs> I, knew that when we, I knew that when we had dinner, she wouldn't touch her food for a very long time, which annoyed the heck out of me because she was just, yapping it up and, and talking. <laughs> I did notice, I'd say about nine months or so before, there were some clues that I got where people said she was saying stuff that seemed uh, inappropriate. Mm-hmm. But I just, those I sort of tossed off. The first indication I think that I had, thinking back on it, had I noticed, is that she started playing words with friends a lot. Hmm. I played with her. I don't do computer games. Okay. No disclaimer, for you. disclaimer, no word all for you. No, I mean, because I made my living as a computer programmer and to me playing computer yeah. games requires the same thought process as programming. And so that's not relaxing. So she got into that and we'd play together and she was 
pretty decent at it. You know, we'd play. Sometimes I'd win. Sometimes she'd win. But then she started to have lots of games going. I mean, I might have like six games going with her and a couple with other friends, but that was about my limit. Like, I don't know what the maximum is, but she'd hit the maximum. Wow. I don't know if that's 30 She was games obsessing or... over it a little bit. Yeah, I guess you'd say that. Yeah. Okay. And daughter's wedding was in fall of 2017. And my daughter said, tell mom not to bring her phone with her because I don't want her just playing words with friends. So, so it was a it was an issue, the words with friends. Yeah, it wasn't just yeah, like, I'm was... done with the day. I'm going to check out. And... Right. Okay. You know, and it's a little hard to see that because... We're always on our phones. <laughs> That's right. That's what I'm trying to say. We're always right. on our phones, which yeah. is why my daughter, for example, has a rule that at the dinner table, there are no phones. That's a great rule. It's a really good rule. So I'd say that was the first. And then my daughter, my older daughter, Elise, said, you should talk to some of our friends. I mean, some of our Karen and my friends. Ask them what they thought. Mm -hmm. Because I think some of them were being shy about saying stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I called them up and interviewed them. <laughs> and that's probably really where I thought, okay, if that's what they're saying. Things like forgetting appointments. Not appointments, but like, you know, let's meet for coffee and then forgetting. Oh, okay. That sort of things that were quite unlike her. So I'd say that's probably where it was with that, that fall. And when you talk to your friends and you kind of notice like, okay, there's, there's more, what did you do? Did you ask um, her about it? Like, Hey, you forgot to meet Lisa for coffee today. What's going on? Uh, no, I said, I thought there was something going on. And maybe we should do some testing. And of course, she talked to her. I think you should talk to your doctor about it. So she talked to her doctor, and her doctor gave her the that mini mocha test, mm. which I think is not. It's worth Wait, something. Wait, which one is it. that? That's the. It's like the thirty question test. It's, it's with the clock and all that, or no? This one doesn't have a clock. No. I don't oh, think okay. This one has a clock. It's, it's, it's like the thirty. Rachel's like things. it's useless. It's, it doesn't. <laughs> Well, I think it's useful only if you do really badly. Right. So yeah. Anybody that has like a semblance of what's going on. We'll do, we'll do okay. okay fine. And there's like, I think there's like 30 questions and I think the three of us would probably get 30 or we would get close to 30. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you get like two, that's a bad, so mm -hmm. she's come back and say, well, I did okay. Then I don't like to let things sit. So I said, well, let's just move forward and figure things out. Um, I was very lucky because I know that in general, it can take people a really long time to get a proper diagnosis. Right. This did not happen with us. So I, I found a uh, neuropsychologist. I don't remember how I got the referral. And we went to, I told Cameron, I said, let's go, we're going to go do this testing. And fortunately, she was, we had a relationship where she was just very, there was total trust there. So I didn't have any difficulty getting her to see the guy. You also have to realize that Karen's background is as a psychiatric nurse. Wow. So she, she's a psychiatric clinical specialist. Um, so wow. seeing psychiatric professionals is not seen as a bad thing. Right. At all. Go Karen. So, so we went to, to get this testing done, which I guess is just a really intense 
I don't say I want to say obnoxious. It's just, just it's a just huge like, battery of tests. It's, it's like, insane. I don't even know what they all are, what they all are. But anyway, so we went there and she had the test and I came back and he interviewed me also. And he said the result of that was, he said it looked like FTD. Now, caveat was that you can't really diagnose it, really diagnose it from that point of view. But he said, uh, I think it was like, feels like it. And did you have any idea what FTD was? No clue. Right. Not at all. And how did he explain it to you? Well, now we're depending on my memory for that. Um, I don't remember. But, Do you remember how you felt walking out of there? Uh, I said, this is something bad. You know, we have to figure right. this out. I tend to be pretty task oriented with these things. And so uh, the emotion simulator. So he recommended, he said, these are places you can go to go further. Basically Tufts, Brigham and Women's, and uh, of course, Mass General. So basically I, not knowing anything, I just stuck my finger in the air and said, okay, we'll do this one. And we went to Tufts. And they did Got an it. MRI. So the psych testing was in February of 2018. And she got the MRI in March and we came back and he gave us those results. And he said, it looks like FTD, but we should probably also do a PET scan. Now, second bit of luck, a lot of people have a problem getting PET scans mm -hmm. for whatever reason. I'm not questioning it. We did not have a problem, but anyway, so she went and got the, the PET scan, which is a, a totally annoying test. Basically what they do is they, you know, inject her with a radioactive marker of some sort. And then they put us in a dark room and they, they said, your job is to make sure she doesn't fall asleep, but you're not allowed to talk. Are <laughs> you doing okay. funny faces? Yeah. Or? Poking her. <laughs> because, well, the point is they, they want the mind to be quiescent because mm -hmm. if it starts getting active, it messes up the test. That's what that's all about. So the, the reason for sitting there in the dark for like 20 minutes is to get your mind to just sort of relax, but you can't fall asleep because that changes the state. So anyway, they did that and they said, yeah, it looks like FTD. Now I didn't really understand at this point. And then we went to Brigham and Women's and then ultimately we went to Mass General. And that was the first time that I really understood what was going on because uh, Dr. Dickerson brought up the, must've been the PET scan and said, here, I'll show you what's going on. And for those who are listening, who haven't seen this before, basically, if, if you look at a cross section of your brain, it look kind of looks like it's a bunch of fjords. And if you look at ours, they're, the fjords have no room in them. There's, they're all smashed together. But in her case, there was a lot of room which is the brain basically disappearing, which is what FTD is. That's when it really hit me. Yeah. And um, what was her, during all these scans and these tests and, you know, just this time in the journey, what was her personality like? What, what, was, what was she doing? Was she exhibiting kind of weirder behaviors? Was it still the words with friends? What was going on? Well, a lot of the words with friends stuff, uh, the words with friends turned out to be a really good indicator of things because uh, when we first started out playing, we were pretty even and I think she was probably actually better than me because I tend <laughs> not to play a lot of word games and I think her vocabulary is probably better than mine. But it got to the point where I had to let her win. 
mm-hmm. where she's just really doing badly. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple of notable points that I picked up on that were just like, no, this is not good. So we belong to a lakes organization in New Hampshire. And there is a local, I don't want to say a news, newsletter that comes out, you know, local news, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And each year she would write a piece in January, in June, in July for the July and August issues. Uh, so she did one that spring and I said, do you need help? She says, no. And so she did the thing and I said, well, I'll prove for you when you're done, which we always did. And she gave it to me and it was all there, but it was not well put together. It didn't, you know, the senses were not, order was not great. It just did lead in right. And this is a woman who's, she's written more articles than you can shake a stick at. Hundreds of articles and, and, and books and things like that. And so I had to fix it up. So I said, do you need help with the next issue? She said, no, no. So I wrote one for the next issue, just in case. And we got down to the end. She says, I can't do this. Can you do it for me? Hmm. That was, that was upsetting yeah but then she'd also do things like we'd have family for dinners and she would just go to the table start eating she wouldn't wait right right stuff like that right okay so you guys got the probable diagnosis of ftd then what what did you do so if we're going to talk about caregiving i have to back up a bit karen was paralyzed in 2007 as a result of uh, spinal cord surgery Uh, she had been paralyzed when she was five, I think, because of an infection from a broken arm. She was paralyzed for about a year. She had uh, multiple surgeries on her back um, through uh, help from her mother. She was able to walk again, so it wasn't a permanent injury, but there was still always this issue with her spine, which, uh, with her spinal cord, which didn't show up again until her early 60s, where she started experiencing foot drop and uh, difficult, some difficulty walking. No, not like she couldn't walk, but it's like, you know, like when you get up in the middle of the night and that sort of thing. So the way to fix this was to have spinal cord surgery. This is not back surgery the way most people experience it, where it's the, the vertebrae. This is what's cord itself. And there's two guys who do this stuff. And uh, so she, we made the choice to, to have this done. We went and had it done. Uh, there was a technical issue with the uh, surgery, which was uh, human cause. It was human error. And the result of that was that she came out paralyzed. She was paralyzed from basically from her breast down. Oh. And what uh, year was this? That was 2007. Wow. So we had to retrofit the house. We also built a new house in New Hampshire, which was totally a totally accessible house. Uh, but it also meant that she needed help getting dressed in the morning and going to bed at night. And we decided that we would have someone come in in the morning to help her get dressed, which was about, you know, a, a couple of hours. It was, it was, I'm not going to get into the details of what's involved, except it's highly process oriented. We will come back to this. Um, and, and we did this because not because I couldn't do it, but because it's better for someone else to do it. And it also gave me time to myself in the morning. So she would get dressed, she would eat breakfast, then she would go off to work. So 
the point of this is that we got used to having people in the house. We had had people in the house earlier than that for her mother who came with us to live with us in 2000. So the extra person wasn't a big deal. Um, I took care of her at night because the nighttime aspect of it was actually pretty straightforward and didn't take much time. So there was a lot of things I learned about caregiving then. Uh, I learned about, you know, taking care of equipment, dealing with providers. I learned how to do a catheter. Your arsenal was very full. It was. You were ready. Yes. I learned how to do a catheter by watching YouTube. Oh, oh wow. Caregivers, uh, I mean, normally she caregivers have to be so savvy and resourceful. Wow. She had, I mean, we were in New Hampshire. We were by ourselves. We did not have help up there and it had to be done. So there you go. Yeah. Um, when she was diagnosed, the caregiving aspect did not really change much. So she still had someone coming in two hours in the morning and I took care of her at night. What was different, of course, was all of the other time where she started to lose it, where she would do things like start the dishwasher five or six times a day, which was kind of annoying. Mm -hmm. you know. And the only way I was able to get past that was to, and I'm sure he's been quoted on this program before, take Charlie Lynch's suggestion to heart, which is, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? Oh, that's a good one. Charlie, Charlie from support group. Yes, Charlie from oh, support group. He's an angel on earth. My he husband is. would yeah. say, I want to be right. <laughs> yeah, but you can't do that. So, so what you... I did was I said, fine, I'm just going to ignore it. And when I, after I put her to bed, I will just reset the dishwasher, run it. And before she gets up in the morning, I'll empty it. And I won't care about the rest of it. But there were other scary things like, she opened up the basement door once. Oof. Okay. She's in a wheelchair. I'm reminding people who are listening. Right. Stairs and wheelchairs are not friends to each other. I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm just looking to see what's down there. So I put a lock on the door Right. as a result. So it was basically the difference was that I had to be much more aware of what was going on and what she was doing to try to remain safe. I want to go back to your point about like, because you had been caregiving for her for about 10 years since she had been paralyzed and you had already had help in the home, you weren't as resistant to that. And I'm wondering, are you bringing that up? Cause you know, that's a theme and support group. Yes, that is yes. exactly why I'm bringing it up. It is a really difficult piece of the journey for people to realize it's time for help. But what, what advice would you give to people about, you know, getting over that hurdle. You can't do it all yourself. Don't be a hero. You know, there's a number of reasons why people might be resisted. One is that they feel like you're supposed to be able to do it all yourself. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say guys are worse this way than women because I'm not sure that that's true. My dad um, was like this, but yeah. You could uh, say it. <laughs> Uh, but you can't do it all yourself and you should, this journey is hard enough. Take the help you can get, you know, it doesn't mean you're losing control. I think, which is the problem people have. We did not lose control. I mean, even if I go back to the, to the times when, uh, before the FTD was, was an issue when we had new people coming, we'd have new people coming in to help from time to time. And I was always, we were both always hyper aware because we needed to make sure that the people 
did the jobs correctly. And there were times when I told people to leave because I knew they weren't going to get it. You're good that at setting was, boundaries. That's something that, we've been talking about a lot. <laughs> that was rare. Okay. Um, but just like I said, there are safety issues with, with wheelchairs. There are safety issues, and there are certain ways of doing certain things. Uh, some of the things aren't safety issues. Right. Getting in and out of a wheelchair is a safe is a place where there's a safety issue. Right. Yep. It sounds like Karen's FTD progressed rather quickly. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, if I look at the timeline, the neuropsych was in February of 2018, and she died in August of 2020. So that's what? Yeah. A little more than two years. Can you talk a little bit about when you made the decision to move Karen into a skilled nursing facility? Sure. I also want to talk about support group for, if I could. Go ahead. Can I go there? So I found out about support group from this, from the first doctor and I went, and I'm saying this because I want people to hear it. The very first meeting I was at, I remember what I said, which was that when we started the spinal cord injury journey, there weren't any support groups that no. I was aware of. There are now. Okay. Um, and I didn't want to have to learn it all by myself again. And that's why I was there. Uh, the support group by itself was just a lifesaver. I mean, it's as bad as a mood as I was ever in when, when I came out of support group. I was always in a better frame of mind than when I went in, uh, which is probably one of the reasons why I, I've continued as a uh, co-facilitator. And I also help out with some spinal cord groups for the same reason. That's awesome. That's, yeah. yeah. Leading back to the other question, yeah. was it being in support group that helped you make that decision to uh, Karen? Kind of, sort of. Because of support group, I found out about Jennifer Pilcher, who I engaged as our care manager. And I asked, and she brought this up with me in our first meeting. And I said, how will I know when? And she said, when you can't be with her alone and it's safe. Mm -hmm. And I said, what do you mean by that? She said, you got to go to the bathroom sometime and leave her alone. And if she's not being safe, left alone like that, that's one of the times. Um, which wasn't really the instigator. Basically, I got to, I started getting to the point where it was because I was alone and didn't have a lot of family around. It was basically on me. I could feel myself going down the tubes. And um, I also had conversations with Katie and she said something which really helped, which was that when she put uh, Michael in a facility that relieved her of most of the caregiving and she was able to just be his wife. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love when she says that. It's yeah. very and powerful. So I said, okay, so this makes sense. And so we started looking around that had to be in, she went to Golden Pond in June of 2019. So I would say that spring-ish, something like that. Uh, it was particularly challenging because we needed a place that would take someone in a wheelchair and the combination of wheelchair and dementia. <laughs> and we found two places, one of whom refused to take her because of the wheelchair and I'm still not sure why. They were afraid that the wheelchair would tip over. She was in a motorized wheelchair. They don't tip easily. No, they're very heavy. The, yeah, they weigh 250 pounds. Hers weigh 250 pounds. Um, so 
but she found Golden Pond, and Golden Pond didn't know anything about taking care of someone in a wheelchair, but they said, we'll figure it out. Love that. So basically, the, the decision point really was when I realized I was no longer capable of taking care of her. I don't like that decision. Not yours, mine. I don't like that feeling when you just hit the wall and you're like, I can't, I, I've done everything. Where, where, what else do I do? It was hard. Well, making this decision to do it was hard. Dealing with that feeling uh, is not hard. Yeah. It was not hard for me because I, I mean, the kind of work that I do, I get to that point frequently. <laughs> but this is a little bit closer to home. Yeah. So I'm used to dealing with really hard problems. Right. The difficulty in putting her there was more uh, them dealing with the spinal cord injury part. Mm-hmm. Now, I still had to have a my own aid there in the morning because, and I, I mentioned this earlier, that spinal cord injury is process in space. Now, there is a lot of process just to getting up and ready in the morning and as we all know, FTD and process don't play well in the sandbox together. Right. So that was one of the reasons we needed the aid, other than the fact that she just needed the help. Right. That must have been so challenging. What was her outlook like? Was she still able to speak? Was she smiley and happy? What was her, you know, demeanor? She was still able to speak. She was able to speak for a long time. For quite a long time, even after she was there. Um, yeah, I mean, we could have conversations and we, I mean, not as good, but we were able to converse and, and, and do stuff together. And, you know, she was at home when we cooked together. She was still able to do some, some cooking and things like that. And do you think she knew what was going on with her, with the FTD component? Do you think uh, she understood not entirely, not entirely. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe kind of a little, but not directly. So, for example, we did, uh, we both played in an orchestra. And that year, the beginning of the year, she decided to quit the orchestra. We had started to play, I forget what piece, it was a piece by Strauss, which was particularly difficult. I mean, we did the first rehearsal, everybody was lost. <laughs> it was just a really hard piece. And she said, I can't, can't do this. And because it took too much energy, she didn't have as much energy as she had before. She was also getting lost in orchestra. And that was another indication, a little bit of background orchestra parts have letters in them in various places, A through whatever. And the way the orchestra works is the conductor will go and say, go to rehearsal L, three bars before that, and then we'll start from there. And she couldn't do that. But then even after that, she was in the audience and she was talking to uh, Dr. Paul Rea, uh, whose wife plays in the orchestra. He said, do you know why you're not, why you're here? She said, because they won't let me play. And what year was this? That was 2000. That was, that would have been 2019, beginning, no, 2018, the fall. You guys had a journey. Yeah, we did. And if you don't want to talk about it, I understand. But a lot of our listeners do like to hear. Um, I know Maria and I would always wonder, like, what is the end going to look like? Is it going to be traumatic? And the answer is always yes. But how or what caused Karen to pass? 
that's not clear. I think I think it's just I, I would say just that's where it went. Uh, yeah. I think complications that, of FTD, like yeah. Yeah, I would say so. From January January of 2024, quite a few months, she was restricted to bed. Um, and the reason she was restricted to bed is because she got a deep sore on her um, coccyx. Mm -hmm. uh, we had been extremely fortunate since her paralysis that she had almost no issues with wounds, which is mm -hmm. a very common problem with people with paralysis. Mm -hmm. But this one was really bad enough that the wound nurse said that she didn't know if it would ever heal. Uh, but she was restricted to bed. It did heal, but uh, we got to the point in that spring where we felt that she needed to be in the memory unit, uh, which she went into in June, middle of June. And then she got another wound. And at the time we thought it was another pressure wound. But in, if your spinal cord injury, you're always sitting down, you know, and those of us who are listening, who are not spinal cord injuries, no, injured, know that when you get uncomfortable, you move a little bit. And if you pay attention to yourself for the next 15 minutes, you will see that you move a lot. Uh, so the supposition was that that was another pressure sore. In retrospect, the uh, wounder said she thought it was a, probably a Kennedy ulcer. Uh, and a Kennedy ulcer really is an indication of the breakdown of, of the skin as an organ. And when that happens, when you get a, a Kennedy ulcer really is a prelude to death. So I think that what happened was that the disease just advanced far enough that the brain got to the point where it couldn't take care of the body. Um, right. We were fortunate in that. So our younger daughter was engaged and we arranged for her to get married at Golden Pond. So she was married one week before Karen died. Oh my goodness. So the answer to your question is I haven't got a clue what yeah. caused it. Yeah, and except the brain just stopped doing its job. Thank you for being so open and honest and making sure you covered all the points you wanted mm. to cover about support groups. I know people are going to learn a lot from this episode, so I appreciate it, Bernie. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. As many of our listeners know, ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, is a devastating neurological disease that affects 25,000 Americans and their families. And many people in our FTD community are living with a dual diagnosis of FTD ALS. We're honored today to be sponsored by Target ALS, a nonprofit organization that is breaking down barriers and revolutionizing ALS research. Target ALS was founded in 2013 by former New York City Deputy Mayor Dan Doktroff, who lost both his father and uncle to ALS. Target ALS's unique collaborative model that involves leaders in academia, research, and industry has led to an area of promising innovative therapeutic approaches in just eight years, including moving six drugs into clinical trials. Please consider making a donation to help continue to bring scientists together like never before to work toward potentially life-saving treatments. Visit TargetALS.org to learn more. Let's shift. Let's to the light. 
let's shift to the light. Let's let's talk about who Karen was before FTD. So can you tell us how you met Karen? Yeah. Oh, there's a lot to talk about, Karen. Karen, Karen and I played in an orchestra. And uh, she played in at that time she played in an orchestra called the the Newton Symphony Orchestra, which ultimately migrated to another orchestra. Newton Mass? It, Newton, it? In Newton Mass, yeah. Oh, nice. And my teacher said, you need to play in a good orchestra. And my teacher was a, played in the Boston Symphony, and he, he was stand partners with the guy who was conducting that orchestra. Not stand partners with, but he was friends with him. The guy was a violinist. And he told the guy, he said, he, I thought it was good enough, and, and so I just showed up. Karen saw me drive up in my uh, Audi at the time. I was a software nice. engineer. No, I was a computer programmer, so you know I could afford it. And <laughs> she she looked at me and she thought, "Now I I started the third rehearsal before a concert. Normally the people that come then are professionals. They're used to fill in." And she thought, "Is this guy a professional?" And then she thought. No, if he was a professional, he couldn't afford that car. <laughs> so she goes up to me and she says, are you a plant? Meaning, you know, a professional like a, musician. Oh, I don't know that term, but okay. <laughs> to which I responded in kind, I said, yes, I'm a philodendron. And that's kind of where it started. And then we, you know, we went to the rehearsal and we came back out and I walked her to her car and I looked down at her and I have to say that I felt like I was struck by lightning. And I said, do you want to go get a drink? Oh my God. Yeah. And what'd I mean, you say? Was, yeah. Take me in that out. said, yes. To me, it was love at first sight. And she thought to herself, Bernie. she told me this later, of course. Gee, I woke up with one guy. I went out to lunch with <laughs> another guy. Three dates, three dates. Three dates in one day. It doesn't get much better than that. Oh, I just found a new, real deep respect for Karen. Go, girl. <laughs> so, wow. so we went to Charlie's and had a drink, which she always claimed was our first date. And I said that it was not our, because I paid. And I claimed that it was not our first date because I didn't ask in advance. So the road between there and getting married was, that was 1975. And we got married a year and a half later. It How was a long years? road. How many years were you were you married? Almost forty four. Wow. So I asked her to marry me in it must have been April. She came to my apartment to break up. Uh oh. No. Yes, I didn't know this. I was <laughs> a twenty I was a twenty five year old guy. Give me a break. I was clueless. And she had she came to break up and up. you were proposing. And I proposed oh boy. before she got it out of her mouth. And she and, accepted. And she said yes. No, no. It took her three months. <laughs> Wait, so what did she say? <laughs> Ask me again in a couple weeks? No, she said, I'll think about it. And it took her three months to say yes. Oh, I, oh I'd be such good friends with Karen. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's amazing. You know, then we made the, then we made the, you know, we started to make the arrangements. Her mother did most of the arrangements because we were getting married in, in, in Illinois. And at one point I found that she had been, she confessed to me that she had been carrying around the wedding invitations in her car for three days. Uh -oh. Not ready to mail them. Right. Oh, wow. Oh, gosh. Oh, no, Karen, 
Karen just keeps getting better and better. So I made her get, I said, I said, get your coat. We're getting, going for a drive. We got in the car. I said, and we drove to mailbox. I said, mail them or it's done. And she she's, them. okay, good. Oh, Marie and I are holding oh. our breath. Oh my gosh. Karen throws those curve balls. Yeah, you, wow. already know what they, you already know how, how the story ends anyway, but. And then when did you guys have kids? Uh, our first was in 1981, Victoria, who's now an ICU nurse in California. Oh, what part of California? San Francisco. Ah, okay. oh, nice. She's, she's in a she works in the neuro ICU. Wow. And is also mother to to our first uh, grandchild named Xander, with Aww. a Z, after Karen. Aww. And oh, I love that. And her other daughter, Elise, was born in 1983 uh, and is a, a designer in Chicago. But I also wanted to say a little bit more about five-time Karen professionally. Yes, okay. please. Karen basically invented what are called care maps. They're sometimes called care paths. Um, she pretty much changed the way, in a large way, the way nursing is practiced. If anybody's familiar with things like uh, discharge plans and discharge goals, that's her. Wow. She was a huge name in nursing. That's incredible. Consult consulted to hospitals uh, all over the United States and Japan and, and England. Uh, she what I didn't say this, I kind of implied it, but she was back on a plane the spring after her surgery. Oh my goodness. She's a so powerhouse, there, huh? There was not much that stopped her. Yeah. And as a mother, she was just off the wall. She was, uh, you know, if she wanted to do something, it happened. You know, she was always there for the kids. When my daughter was in her semester abroad, and was having problems. She was in, in uh, Italy. She flew flew there to be with her. She flew to, to Nicaragua to be with the other daughter, just at a whim. That's who she wow. was really dedicated mom mm -hmm. and really dedicated to her job and, and sort of dedicated to you right because the mailing the three months of <laughs> no no after that it was oh no, she said no she said that i was the wind beneath her wings from that time i was totally in love with her for the all 44 years still no, bernie they don't make that kind of love anymore i'll tell you that well sure they do well, in the movies. What about our husbands, Rachel? No, like them, yeah. But like, you know, with social media and Tinder and Bumble, like it's just different now. It is different, but it still exists, right? I don't know. Maybe. One of our favorite questions is, how do you think Karen would like to be remembered? As she was as a mother. She sounds like a fabulous mom. Yeah, I mean. Just jumping on a plane and being like, don't worry, I'll be there soon. <laughs> well, I'll share with you an interaction I had with, with uh, our younger daughter. So Xander got COVID. It, it was, I mean, he's like totally non-symptomatic. And when I, I texted her, the daughter, I said, if mom were here, she'd be on a plane. Yeah. And our daughter said, that would be a terrible idea. <laughs> but I could see her trying. Hmm. Do you see Karen in your daughters? Oh yes, in, in both of them, and you know, in the in the in the way you know the way Victoria takes care of Xander, 
the the way they react to life. Um, the you know our older daughter and her husband bought a house this past December, and she said she wanted us all to come out for Christmas, which was two weeks later. We said, "How's that going to happen?" And then I realized she's doing a Karen. She wants wants it to happen. She'll pull it together. Oh, I love said, that. Karen said, "I want what I want when I want it." She's doing a Karen. Maria, that's going to be a new slogan. We need to rebrand Karen to be this yeah. Karen. <laughs> We're doing a Karen. <laughs> I love that. So our one of our favorite parts of the podcast is the ending. We always end on your loved one's words. So do you have something with you that Karen wrote? Karen sent me this. <sighs> oh, this is Anniversary beautiful. card. And what the card says is, it's always been you, always will be. Happy 40th anniversary. And she wrote, all my love, Karen. I have this framed and hanging up in my kitchen. So I see it every morning. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can learn more about Remember Me at RememberMeFTD.com or by following us on Instagram at RememberMePodcast. We release new episodes each week on Tuesdays, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can learn more information about our sponsors in the show notes and on our Instagram. This podcast is produced by Maria Kent Beers and Rachel Martinez, and the beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky 